opening up our church for two hour span of time for prayer. We're opening this to the public. We're going to have signs out front. We'll advertise this. Uh, anyone who needs prayer, uh, we want you to come and uh, let us pray with you, for you. Nobody comes, and then those of us who are here, we're just, we're just going to pray. Uh, so we're going to start doing that on Wednesday nights, and that's not being led by me. That's being uh, actually going to be headed up by uh, Lori Norman, and I think the ladies' class. So um, this past week, weekend, we had a uh, men's cookout for our class, and uh, you know we started talking about different things, and one of the conversations we, we decided, hey, somebody said, list your five top movies that you love, that you love to watch. And uh, it's interesting. You learn a lot about people by the movies they watch. Uh, so we started just naming off, you know, what's your favorite movie? Well, for me, my favorite, all-time favorite movie uh, is Gladiator. I've probably watched that movie 20 times. I don't know, maybe even more than that. So uh, like most guys, I love movies that, you know, where things are blowing up and um, things are getting destroyed. So if, if I, I don't get to have that in the movie, then it's just not worth it, right? Right? Okay, so, you know, like I loved uh, Lord of the Rings, I uh, loved all those movies, I was a big Rocky fan back in the day, and uh, until they just kept making too many of them, and then it got redundant, but, um, so a couple years ago, a movie came out called The New Independence Day, and is a sequel off of a movie uh, that spun out back in 1996, and it's your basic, um, you know, the original plot of the movie was that the Earth is invaded by aliens, and um, you know they blew everything up. And by the end, uh, humanity came together, and they discovered the aliens' weakness, and went into battle and defeated the aliens. And they went back to wherever they came from. And so, in the the sequel of the '96 movie, the the newest one that came out um, is 20 years later. Um, the alien, you know, we've been preparing in case the aliens return, and so we have outposts on, like, Mars and on the moon and in preparation for a, a forthcoming attack. And so the aliens, they do. They return, and they're bigger, they're more powerful, and there's, you know, greater and more epic battles that take place and just a whole lot of stuff being blown up. It's really cool. So the interesting thing about movies like Independence Day or any other movie that's got a lot of things like that happening uh, you know, I love the Star Wars stuff, um, is that there's, there's always uh, a point in which the heroes of the movie have to make some kind of decision, and it's like an epic decision. Like, if, if I make the wrong decision, this is not going to turn out well. So based on the decision that they make, it will determine whether or not they end up being a hero or a zero uh, by the end of the movie, right? So it's just like a crossroads, a defining moment, and uh, they're not going to back down. They're going to make the dis tough to call, and they, and they want to be, you know, they want to be remembered for something. And so, defining moments. Defining moments are very much a part of our lives, all of us, right? So there are always those crossroads that we face at various junctures in our life, and we, we have a decision to make. And it might not be the, a good versus bad decision. It might be a good versus the best decision, or something of that nature, and, and there may not be a whole lot of clarity as to which is the right decision, but these are defining moments, and we know that based on this decision that I'm about to make, it is certainly, as I talk about it a lot, it's going to certainly going to put my feet on a path, and remember, every path has a destination. Uh, there's something that's going to result uh, from that decision that I make. 
And so all decisions that we really make in life are pivotal because they do determine our future and our legacy. Now, most of your decisions are not going to involve intergalactic aliens, but there are decisions we make every day that will determine who we become in life and how our life reflects back to those around us, right? So I make decisions as a father and as a husband that not only affect and impact my life, but also affect and impact the lives of my family, my immediate family and extended family and maybe even coworkers or, you know, it, it's the rippling effect. And so I want to talk about, um, about your legacy, guys, about what it is that you want to, what, what you want to be remembered for. What do you want to be the ultimate um, contribution that you make to this world and in particular to your family? before you leave this earth. Because we are faced, we are confronted with decisions every day. And some of those decisions are easy, some of them are much more difficult, and some of those decisions are made within the context of not battling aliens, but you are battling the evil one called Satan, who is seeking, as Jesus says, to steal, kill, and to destroy. He would love nothing more to destroy you and destroy your family based on bad decisions that you're making because those decisions are driven by factors that um, you've not dealt with in your life. So I want to talk about three of those factors today because we're going to see this in the life of the individual that we are, we're going to be looking at. Psalm 112.6 says, Surely he will never be shaken. A righteous man will be remembered forever. So if you want to leave a forever legacy or a lasting impact, the key, he says, is to be a righteous person, which means the key here is to follow after God's heart. And I'm going to give you at the end of this message what I call the secret sauce that will help you do that. So in Judges chapters 14 through um, 16, or actually you could do 13 through 16, I guess where we'll, we'll be, um, we're going to look at a person that you're very familiar with. His name was Samson. All right, Samson made a lot of bad decisions. And decisions that not only impacted his life personally, but also impacted his parents. Uh, it impacted his future. It impacted how we even view him. Now, if you were asked most people about Samson, there are two things they remember about him. He was a really strong guy. And uh, he had a weakness for women. In fact, you'll see that in three chapters, he's got three different women, and all of them end up being bad news for him. And there, there's a reason for that. And so the one person that most people remember in these three escapades is that of Delilah. And uh, Samson and Delilah. It's very, very popular. Um, you know, we see it all over the place. So we're trying to leave a, a legacy. We want to leave a legacy as fathers, as husbands, and uh, as, as a follower of Jesus Christ. But sometimes we travel down the wrong way. We spend our time trying to acquire wealth only to find out that after we are gone, uh, people are just splitting up our wealth and, you know, they are you know, fervently spending it as just as quick as they can. Or we, we try to work, work, work and attain a success and to reach a level of success so that, um, you know, our name is on the side of a building, only to find out that people really don't even care about your name on the side of a building. 
they forget all about it. So whether you're trying to build a legacy of money, fame, power, success, I mean, it's a hopeless pursuit because that's really not the most powerful legacy you can leave, all right? So for some of us, you know, we're never going to make a lot of money. We're never going to be like wealthy individuals. For some of us, we're, we're never going to be that, you know, top successful person that the whole world knows your name. For most of us guys here, we are just ordinary people. Uh, we work, we do our thing day in and day out, but we are husbands, we are fathers, we are grandfathers. So what kind of legacy, what kind of impact, how do you want to be remembered by your family? What is the greatest influence that you can have upon them? Because uh, as much as you want to have that positive role model, you know, influence upon your children and grandchildren, if you're not careful, your faith can be shipwrecked and your life can be destroyed before you ever get to that point. So there are three weaknesses that I find in Samson that are the same three weaknesses that most people deal with whether male or female, but in particular, I want to kind of zone in on the guys today since, after all, it is Father's Day, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, if you look at Samson, every time you, you meet a person, Peter Drucker said this, a person with great strength also has great weaknesses. And Samson illustrates this point. I mean, you, you, can, you know athletes, presidents, executives, a lot of people who had tremendous strengths, but they had weaknesses that were unchecked, and as a result of that, they toppled. Just in this last month, three seminary professors and an executive in our convention have fallen because of extramarital affairs. I wish I could say that's an isolated case. I went through a webinar through Dallas Theological Seminary that was led by pastors who led churches who had affairs or who got hooked on porn to the point that they lost their church, they lost their families, they lost everything. They promised God they would never do it again, that they would get out of it, that they would put it behind them only to keep going back over and over and over again. And the question is, what are we going to do about this as a church, as a society? Because the numbers are staggering. 85% of young boys from the ages of 9 to 14 are hooked on pornography. It is so readily accessible through the Internet. And it's, you know, it's just like a rapid fire. It is said that nothing creates more dopamine, that feel-good chemical in your brain, more than pornography except meth and opioids. Forty percent of pastors in America are hooked on porn. And then as the, you know, as the ages change, the percentages change, but by and large, the number of men hooked on pornography in the church of Jesus Christ across this country is virtually the same as those who are not followers of Christ. Now the question is, why is this happening, and what are we going to do about it? So the purpose of the seminar, the, the webinar, was that there is a program that they have developed that will help guys kick the habit. 
And one of the reasons why it's so, so difficult that nobody addresses in most recovery programs is that pornography literally rewires your brain. And nobody addresses that issue, and so this program does. There are what they call six stakes, and uh, those six stakes, they said, if you don't remove each and every one of them, then no matter how much you love God, no matter how much you love Jesus, no matter how much you promise God you'll never do it again, you're going to find yourself right back into the same stuff. So I just want to try to set up um, some factors out of the life of Samson that will help us, not just in this area, but, but in any other area of our life in which um, Satan can get a foothold that would, we, would derail us as fathers and as husbands and as grandfathers. We do not want to reach the end of our lives and to be noted for something that has derailed our lives in, in, you know, in, in a string of bad decisions, right? So, you know, for Samson, his life, um, it kind of reveals himself in, in, so in chapters 13 through 15. So let me just set the context of the book of Judges. Uh, you recall that the book of Judges is about a series of judges because Israel kept going in through the same cycle, right? So they would, uh, they would be, you know, following God, pledging their allegiance to the Lord. And, you know, God says, listen, I'm your God and I will provide for you. I will protect you. Just follow me. And so they would do that for a while. And then uh, they would look at the other countries around them and they begin adapting their lifestyle. They begin adapting their gods, their idols. And so those idols would replace uh, their, their uh, focus upon the Lord, their God. And so, you know, God was kind of like set on the back burner of their lives. And they were giving their focus, worship, and attention to these idols of these, these other foreign gods. And so uh, God would just... Um, he would allow enslavement to take place. Kind of like in Romans chapter 1, when it's, you know, we talk about the wrath of God, we think, oh, that's fire from God coming from heaven, you know, to consume us. No, the wrath of God in Romans 1 is this, is that God just gives you over to something. He just lets you have your way. And so he knows that the end result are consequences, right? So they, they would. They would. Their hearts were enslaved by these idols, these foreign gods. They could not deliver what they promised. And, and so, you know, things weren't going very well for them. And finally, they'd have enough of it, and they, were, they would repent. In their suffering, they would cry out to God and say, God, you know, uh, we're not going to do this again. You're the only true God. And they would repent, and they'd turn their lives back to God. And God was gracious and kind, and he would raise them up, a, a, a judge, a deliverer, who would deliver them from the hand of whatever country was opp oppressing them, and things were really well again, and people were, you know, walking with the Lord again, and that would go on for a while, and then they would do, go through the same cycle 13 times. They went through this cycle. And so for 40 years, the Philistines have, have been their enemy and have held them in captivity for most of that time, and so God raises up Samson. They've They've kind of repented, turning their hearts back, and Samson is raised up as one of those judges. Now, the Philistines were ahead of their time. Uh, they, they were very astute in using iron for weaponry and uh, architecture, culture. Uh, they built their civilization on piracy and conquest, though. They were, uh, they were a militarized society with unspeakable cruelty, and they represented the enemies of God at their strongest. And so here's the three things. Samson is being raised up by God to be the deliverer for Israel. And so here are 
the three characteristics, if you're not careful, will weaken your life and, if possible, destroy your, leg- your legacy, your, uh, your ability to influence in a very strong and powerful way. Number one is uncontrolled desires. Uncontrolled desires. It says um, in chapter 13 that, um, verse 3, it says, The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are sterile. This is, this is uh, Samson's mother, and you're going to give birth to this child. And but here's the important part is down in, uh, it says, Now see to it, in verse 4, that you drink no wine or fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean, because you will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor may be used on his head, because the boy will be a Nazarite set apart to God from birth, and he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. So here we have the Nazarite vow, which was a very important uh, aspect of Samson's life. And so when we get to chapter 14, Here's, here's something that you, you see in Samson is that Samson, as he has gotten older now, obviously, he has, he has desires that are just out of control, all right? So um, anything left uncontrolled in your life is going to weaken you, all right? It doesn't matter what it is. It can be food. It can be money. It can be um, managing your time. Uh, you may have pet indulgences, the things that grab your attention and your affection. And again, for Samson, his his uncontrolled desires was around women. He was like the Hugh Hefner of the Bible. And uh, again, three different women, three different chapters. And notice what he says in verse 1 of chapter 14. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there was a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. And so this is like a command. He's like saying to his dad, look, I found her, I saw her, go get her. I want her, and I want her now. His father and mother replied, isn't there a more acceptable woman among your relatives or among your, your own people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? What was God's command to his people? Do not intermarry with other nations. Why? Because they're going to drag your heart away from me, which they had done over and over and over again. The same issue was out to Solomon. Remember Solomon, David's son? He had, you know, all these 700 wives, 300 cockpits. What did God say? Listen, they're going to drag your heart away from me. No, it won't happen to me. It won't affect me. I can handle it. I can can take care of it. And so now notice what it says in verse 4. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to control the Philistines, for at that time they they were ruling over Israel. Now, please do not misunderstand that verse. It does not mean that breaking the law designed by God, that that was God's desire for Samson. It's just that God's now taken his foolish decision, and he's going to leverage it on his, his behalf, all right, on God's behalf. So um, how many of us have gotten in trouble by doing the same thing? I'm just following my heart. I'm just trusting my emotions. I'm just doing my thing. And when that becomes the ruling process, If we're not careful, we can really deceive ourselves. Samson's out-of-control desires, you're going to see this plague him all throughout his life. Now, I'm going to give you kind of an excuse and a solution with each one of these areas. And so, um, you know, I don't know about you, but if you have an uncontrolled desire, 
You can talk yourself into anything and even give me a Bible verse to back it up. All right, for example, um, let's see. Well, my uncontrolled desire is, well, it used to be blizzards, okay? So like Dairy Queen blizzards were my uncontrolled desire. So, you know, my daughters worked at Dairy Queen in Canal Winchester. And so, you know, I justified eating blizzards by saying, hey, when you mess one up, call me. Uh, so I'll be right over. And so that, that okay, now... A blizzard, a blizzard to a diabetic is like crack cocaine, okay? So, like, it's not a good thing, but I would justify it, you know, rationalize. Well, you know, they messed it up. Somebody's got to eat it. I'm here. Uh, so here's the excuse. Just this once, or it's such a small thing. What I want you to understand is that for Samson, he has desires that he cannot control because, you know, he can't control much of anything in his life at this point. And so he sees something. He's kind of like David when David saw Bathsheba. I see it. I want it. I'm going after it. I got to have it. Nobody's going to stop me. Even though God had given specific commands for them not to do that. It doesn't matter. Uh, here's our typical excuse, no matter what it is. The attitude is, well, you know, just this one time. It's not going to hurt. It's just a little thing. And we are only chatting online. No harm in that. We're only having drinks after work. No harm in that. Small things can have an enormous impact upon your life. So if you are a man and you are in a marriage and your marriage is a wreck and your emotions are all over the map, all of a sudden now Satan comes along and he offers you something, right? He baits the trap and he says, all of a sudden he brings something across your, your, your Facebook. Oh, all of a sudden now here's a Facebook uh, I'm getting a friend request from an old girlfriend that I had back in high school. Well, it, it just really won't hurt for me to contact her. It won't hurt for me to be in a chat room with her. It won't hurt if we just meet this one time. And so now the mind begins to rationalize because the emotions, the desires are out of control. And we start making what are we know poor decisions seem to be okay decisions because, after all, we are following the desires of our heart. So that would be like you getting on a cruise ship and you getting halfway out in the ocean and all of a sudden the captain comes on and says, hey, uh, we did not want to startle you. We didn't want to put any fear in your heart before we left port, uh, but we just want you to know there is a small leak in our ship. Uh, we have no capability of, of um, fixing it, but we do believe we can reach our next port before the boat sinks, right? So what would you be doing? You, you would want off the boat, right? You would want to get in a lifeboat and get off that ship. See, little things, little leaks in our lives, in our desires, can, be, can result in disaster as men if we're not careful. I see it over and over again. I, I deal with it all the time. Men who have wrecked their lives through sexual affairs, who sit across from me and say, I never thought it could happen to me. But it did. And it always, always, always started off with something very, very small that wasn't fixed. So how do I handle little things in life is simply a question of time. Samson chose to ignore it. He just w knew what he wanted. His desires were ruling his thought processes at this point, And his life got out of control. And eventually it started his downward spiral. 
Here's the solution. You have to learn to discipline your desires. Like Proverbs 25, 28 says, like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. In other words, a person who is undisciplined in life is defenseless. It's not an issue of hanging on to a pet sin. No, you've got to learn to discipline your desires. Stop playing games. Stop pretending. Stop rationalizing your desires that are out of control, and you need to learn how to get them under control and discipline them because if you don't, I guarantee you, it doesn't matter if it takes one year, five years, ten years, or fifteen years, Satan will make sure that you end up in a very horrible situation because you have never learned to discipline your desires. It happens all the time. Stop lying to yourself. Your past experience must be the grid through which you evaluate every single decision that you make when it comes to your desires. For example, there are chances, there, there are some places you have no business visiting because of your past history. Places that would maybe have no impact on the average person, but the average person does not share the same past experiences as you do. For example, I have a very good friend. Uh, who now pastors a church in Lorraine, Ohio. He was a, a foreman at the Ford plant. For many years, he had a gambling problem. His wife never knew about that gambling problem. In fact, it got so bad, the way that his wife found out is when she received a letter from the bank, it was a foreclosure notice. She had no idea that he had literally bankrupted them. Now, he has put that in the past. He has overcome that. That happened many, many years ago, but here's what he's going to tell you. You know what? Based on my past experiences, there are certain places I cannot go because I don't even want to set myself up for the, even the opportunity to go back to that which I have now put under discipline. Wise man. There are certain people you have no business spending time with. Being around them triggers something unhealthy in you. But if I can't be with, I've heard this, well, if I can't be with them and go to the places, uh, how, who's going to reach them for Christ? How am I going to reach them? This is, I'm speaking particularly if you are an addict of some sort, right? So it, one of the reasons why addicts relapse is because they get themselves in the same situation around the same people that they used with. And so I say, you can't be around them anymore. But who's going to reach them for Christ? Somebody other than you. So why would we fool ourselves into thinking, hey, I can handle this, it's a little thing, uh, it's no problem, it's just one time, it's a small thing, and then they end up being around this person, and before long, they are relapsing right back into the same addictions that they have uh, put under discipline, maybe for many years. Maybe you have refused to buy uh, on credit because of your past experience with credit cards. There's nothing wrong with credit cards. Credit cards inherently are not evil. They can become that way because they can make you a, a, a slave to the debtor, uh, to, the, to the bank. But, um, but look, if you know in your past experience you have had a problem in this area of your life, then obviously you ought to be the person who cuts them up, does not use them, does not have them in your possession because you know that is a, that is a desire uh, that may get out of control and therefore cause you to make decisions that are unwise. My point is simply this. Guys, wherever there is an uncontrolled desire in your life, 
please, for the love of God and for the sake of your family, get help. Get it under control. You need to find a place, an avenue by which you can put that desire under the lordship of Jesus and keep it there. And I can almost assure you, you cannot do that on your own. You need help. Get it. Don't be another statistic. Don't be another person. I had a young man, a family who was in this church a few years back, two small children. What his wife did not know, he was hooked on child porn. And then he got into a sting operation with the Columbus Police Department and was busted trying to solicit an, a minor for sexual relations. Guess what? How do you think she felt when she received the phone call, her husband's in jail, and why he is there? How did that happen? How did he get to that point? Because there were some desires in his life that were out of control, that he never uh, got a handle on, never sought out help for, never thought it would happen to him, never thought it would go to that length, never thought it would result in this, and now all of a sudden, He's lost his family, he's lost his job, and now he's trying to figure out what he's going to do with the rest of his life. I'm telling you, please, please, please get help. Number two is uncontrolled emotion. Uncontrolled emotions. So Samson, another aspect of his life is that he was a guy who was filled with anger. I mean, every time you look at, at Samson, he, he's getting angry about something. And so it says in verse 6 of chapter 14, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power so that, you know, he, he tore this line up apart with his bare hands that he might, like, he had, he, like it was a young goat. And, uh, but he never told his mother or father, went down and uh, talked with the, the woman, and, and he liked her. So this is the girl that he's trying to tell them to, to, hey, bring. So sometime later when he went back to marry her, he turned aside and looked at the lion's carcass and it was filled with a swarm of bees and some honey and uh, he scooped his hands and he ate and and as he went along and when he rejoined his parents he gave them some and they ate of it also so now um, in verse 10 his father went down to see the woman and Samson made a feast there as customary for bridegrooms and when he appeared he gave he had given 30 he was given 30 companions oh let me tell you a riddle and so Samson gives them this riddle. It says, uh, if you can give me the answer in seven days, within seven days of the feast, I will give you 30 linen garments. So this is like a big deal. So like clothing was, was huge back in that day. 30 sets of clothes. If, I, if you can't tell me the answer, then you must give me the linens of the garments. So here's, the, here's what it was. Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. And so, you know, they made this agreement with Samson. Well, as time is going on, they can't figure it out. So, you know, they got to coax his wife, right? So this is what happens in verse 15. We'll, we'll not read all of that, but he's coaxing them, his wife, and saying, look, you know, we can't figure this out. This is, what, this is the situation. We, you need to go find out from your husband exactly what that riddle means and, means and then bring us back the information. And, of course, that's exactly what she does. And so down in verse 18, it says, before sunset on the seventh day, the men of the town said to him, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And Samson said, if you had not plowed with my heifer, uh, please don't call your wife a heifer, uh, you, would not, you would not have solved my riddle. 
And then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. He went down to Ashkelon, struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of their belongings, gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle, burning with anger. He went up to his father's house. And so here he is. Uh, Samson is just quick to the anger. He's quick with rage. It's something they never really got control of and his emotions. Um, and so, you know, he's killed this lion with his bare hands. He's, he's wreaking havoc because they figured out the riddle through his wife. And then, if that weren't enough, when you come to chapter 15, it, it says that later on at the time of, of the wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat and went to visit his wife. He said, I, I'm going to, to my wife's room. Now, remember, he, we didn't read. You know, he's like, he was mad at his wife, so he, like, he sends her away. And so, verse 2, I was sure, her father says, I was sure that you thoroughly hated her, that I gave her to your friend. Isn't your younger, my, her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. Samson said, this time, I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. So he went out and caught 300 foxes and tied their tails together in pairs. And, you know, this is the first uh, original taillights in the Bible. And he sends them out into the fields of the Philistines, so he's burning up their fields. All right, so he's like, he's taking revenge. And see, here's the thing about revenge. Here's the excuse for revenge. They hurt me first. Therefore, I'm justified to get back. And resentment and getting even is a waste of time, energy, and creativity. The whole thing, time that you're stewing over a person, you know what they're, they're doing? They're not even thinking about you. They're probably oblivious to the fact that you're stewing over them. And people think about you a whole lot less than you think. And the only time Samson became creative is when he's plotting this, this revenge. And, and you've got to give him credit. It was uh, pretty, pretty creative. And then if you... Um, so it says down in verse, um, latter part of verse 6, so the Philistines went up and burned her and her father, that is, his, his wife and their, his father-in-law, they put him to death because they're, they're the cause of all this. Samson said to them, since you acted like this, um, I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. He attacked them viciously, and he slaughtered many of them. And so here he is, his, you know, again, his anger's out of control. Um, and so it says in verse 11, he answered, and when the question was asked, he says, I merely did to them what they did to me, right? So that's, that's revenge. It's just, it's painful. So sometimes um, things happen in your life, guys, that creates great hurt, great pain, and if you're not careful and your, your emotions remain uncontrolled, uh, it can result in you making decisions that you may forever regret. Uh, for example... Uh, hurt, anger, bitterness, emotions like that can be very destructive. Think about if you've gone through a painful divorce. Um, and, and that happens a lot in our society, right? People go through painful divorces. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of emotion. I grew up in a home where a divorce took place. I have I, I, I not experienced it personally, but I, I lived that as a child. I saw firsthand all the hurt, the pain, the bitterness, the resentment, and all that went on uh, as a result of that. And if you're not careful, you want revenge on your ex-spouse, and you quickly jump into a new relationship on the rebound, right? So because why? It's, it's a form of revenge. It's a form of I'm getting back. 
you know, it, it, you got to be very careful because now your emotions, watch, our, our emotions are driving our thought processes rather than our thoughts driving our emotions. And so whenever you are be, being emotionally driven in life, you are probably not making very wise decisions. Things that will come back to haunt you. So the solution to this is you have to learn how to restrain your reactions. You need to choose to act rather than reacting towards others. Proverbs 16.32 says, Better a patient man than a warrior, a man who controls his temper, than one who takes a city. You know, Alexander the Great conquered the world by his mid-30s. A tremendous man that had one fatal flaw. He had a hair-trigger temper. And as a result of that, one day in a fit of rage, he struck and killed his general, who also happened to be his best friend. And here's what he said, I've conquered the world, but I can't conquer my own soul. Your critics, those who have created hurt in your life, um, they can refine you, but they don't have to define you. See, Samson never got hold of his anger. And his anger kept getting him into trouble. He kept seeking out revenge. He looked for a way to get back. My, my point is simply this. Um, be very careful about making decisions that are emotionally, purely emotionally driven. Out of hurt. Out of anger. Out of resentment. Because, again, you are setting up a foothold for the evil one to come into your thought processes and begin guiding your life and setting your feet on pathways that are going to be ultimately very destructive to you. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, it says in verse 14, in power. The ropes on his arms, you know, he, he was, his, his, listen, his own people said, look, we got to turn you over to the Philistines. <laughs> he goes, well, okay, but you're, you're not going to, you're not going to, he says, swear to me that you won't kill me yourselves. So they tie him in these ropes. The Lord, Spirit of the Lord comes on. He just, you know, shatters these bindings, finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey. He grabbed it, struck down a thousand men. And Samson said, with a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. And so, again... It's like anger, right? It's revenge. It's like I'm getting back. Number three, uncontrolled impulses. In chapter 16, Samson's strength obviously was a gift from God, but he constantly misused and abused it. In his Nazarite vow, you remember it included three things, a special diet, no strong drink, couldn't cut his hair. And so the, the strength of Samson was not literally in his hair, but the commitment he was making to God. And Samson totally forgot his vow and sold out and compromised and gave in ultimately. So the, probably the most famous chapter of Samson's life is about, you know, his, his um, escapade with Delilah. And so now the Philistines, you know, obviously they, they want Samson off the scene. They want to figure out what is the key to his strength, and they believe that D Delilah can find this out. And so that's really what chapter 16 is about. 
Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute, and so he spent the night with her, and Samson is here. So they surrounded the place. They lay in wait at the night, and, and Samson, in verse 3, um, he waited till the middle of the night, and then he got up. He took hold of the doors of the city gate together with his post and tore them loose and, and bar and all, and he lifted them in his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. And sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, see if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so that we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. And so Delilah said to Samson, Samson, tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. A man is never weaker than when a woman is telling him how strong he is. You see, Samson all of his life had compromised, and so he does here. Now, he's going to toy with Delilah at first. You know, he tells her, here's what you need to do. She does it. Philistines arrive. He breaks it off, the ties, the bonds, whatever is going on. And, of course, you know, he's, he's got his strength. And, of course, Delilah goes back the second time and says, oh, now, but now she's crying. <laughs> All right, so now she's weeping about it. Oh, Samson, you don't love me. You don't care about me and, uh, and all this. So he gives it to her the second time. And then uh, he comes back, she comes back the third time. Now, you would think by this time uh, Samson's got a clue about what's happening. Uh, but he doesn't. So he finally caves. He gives her... He gives her the answer in verse 17. He says, no, he, so he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head. He said, because I have a Nazarite, been a Nazarite set apart to God since birth. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become as weak as any other man. Now, please, please tell me, uh, given the backstory of this, did he think that once his head was shaved, that she wasn't going to call the Philistines all of a sudden. She was going to have a change of heart, a change of mind. See, this is what happens when your desires and your emotions and your impulses get out of control. You don't even think straight anymore. You've lost all logic. You, you, you are just like giving in to everything. And so compromise becomes a part of your life. And compromise deadens your voice to the spirit. And Satan always finds a way to use it to his advantage in some form or fashion. And so all of a sudden, you know, he's asleep in her lap. The head is shaven. And uh, it says in verse 20, then she calls, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He woke up from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. Now, here is the saddest verse in the Bible. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. You remember in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God came upon people, did not indwell people. He did not even know that God had departed. You see, the enemy always looks for a weak point of entry, and he exploits it. And we who are being exploited are blinded by our pride. This will never happen to me. I've got a handle on this. I can do this, and 
think nothing of it. There, there, there might be some weaknesses in my life, Pastor, around my desires, and there might be some uncontrolled emotions and uncontrolled impulsiveness, but you don't understand, man, I can handle it. I've got a, I've got a grip on this, really? And here's the excuse. It'll be different for me. Please give me a dollar for every time I've heard that one. I'd be a wealthy guy. I'd probably retire next week. Hmm. Here's the solution. You have to learn to keep your commitments. You see, uncontrolled means that you're drifting. And when you drift, you're giving up control. You are never, in, you, listen, you never intend, you never intend to get yourself into the situations that you ultimately regret in life. Nobody, nobody intends to blow up their marriage. Nobody intends to bury themselves in debt. Nobody intends on destroying their career. Nobody intends on alienating themselves from their children. Nobody intends on becoming an addict of anything. It is all the result of a stream of unwise choices, choices that are driven by and based upon uncontrolled desires, emotions, and impulses. God wanted to do such tremendous things through the life of Samson. God wanted to use Samson in a way that would leave this phenomenal legacy. But that's not what we remember him for, is it? That's not the story that he wrote with his life. And like Samson, there are a few of us who can stand to be told what to do, which is why we couldn't get, wait to get out of our parents' house. If you don't believe me, try telling your neighbor, giving him advice about how to raise his kids. Or try telling the guy at the gas station why buying that lottery ticket was probably a waste of time. Why didn't you just give me the 20 bucks and I was, it would have been good, right? While you may escape having to listen to anyone's opinion about your decisions, trust me, your private decisions have very public consequences. Because those private decisions will ultimately come to light because they're going to set your feet on a path that's going to lead to a destination. And once Satan has baited you in, he understands that the consequences are, are tremendous. And not just the consequences to you. Every temptation that you face has more than just the consequences of the temptation in front of you. It goes far beyond that. The reach is way, it's the rippling effect way beyond that. And so my heart is broken as a pastor because of the number of men that I see the struggle uh, in different areas of their lives and, and they're wanting to be free. They're wanting to be healed. They're wanting to conquer that which is seeking to take them out and to take them down. But how many times have guys been so prideful and said, but you don't understand, Pastor. It's, it's not going to happen for me. It's, I've got this under control. It'll be different for me. They hurt me first. I, I, you know, it's just one time. It's just a small thing. And so pride keeps us from an honest evaluation of really where we are in life and what it is that we're really dealing with behind the scenes, behind closed doors, what's rolling around inside of your heart, what's going on inside of your mind that you think is never going to end up like a Samson. Well, let's just, 
let's just uh, say for the sake of, okay, let's say that you live that way all of your life, and at the end, you know, you are never found out, it never comes to light, you are never caught, whatever, that, whatever it might be for you. Is that really how you want to exit the world? Knowing that really you live like a hypocrite? Listen, God has so much more for you guys and for me. There's not a male that doesn't struggle with a lot of different issues alive. The question is, how do you handle it? Because here's the tragic result is you know the end of Samson's story, right? They, they capture him. They gouge out his eyes. They, they, they chain him up. And then finally, you know, they're dedicating a temple to their God, and they bring Samson in. They're going to make sport of him, and they're going to, you know, make, you know just use him as, as an example to everybody, how strong and how mighty their God is. And the, but his hair has grown back. His strength has now returned. And all of a sudden, Samson prays to God, God, just give me this one last time. Just give me this one last opportunity to, to oh, sovereign. Here's that. Remember me, oh, God. Please strengthen me just one more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistine for my two eyes. Still in revenge mode. And so he does. He knocks out the supporting pillars, the temple collapses, Samson dies. I don't think that's the end that God had in mind for him. So here's the bottom line. In light of the legacy that you want to leave, what is the wise thing to do? You need to ask yourself some questions. Am I honestly... Am I really being honest with myself in the areas of my desires and my emotions and my impulses? Am I really being honest about these things and thinking, trying to convince myself, I have these under control, I've got it all, it, it's all contained. Is it really? Is there tension that deserves your attention? Because if there's some tension that deserves your attention in these areas, it's probably God's Spirit trying to speak to you. Please do not stand Him off in pride that says, I can handle this on my own. I can do this on my own because you can't. And when considering all of the options, what would be most honoring to God? And really, what story would you want told about you? So here, I think, is what I call the secret sauce. Guys, to remaining faithful to the Lord, to live a righteous life, to live a lasting, leave a lasting legacy, to really have a tremendous impact and influence upon your kids and grandchildren and, and other kids that you may deal with, you know, teaching here at the church or wherever. It's the Word of God. Unless the Word of God is washing over your mind, unless the Word of God is washing over your emotions, unless the Word of God is washing over your impulses, you, you, you don't stand a chance. It is the Spirit of God taking the Word of God that is bringing all of this under the Lordship of Jesus. Now watch this. It is the Spirit of God filling you with the Word of God. There is a difference between being filled and being full. 
If I held up a glass of water and said, you know, and it's three quarters full of water, uh, what do I need to do in order to fill this glass? Well, I got to empty it first. Here's the beautiful thing you'll notice about Jesus. Jesus loved to fill empty things. When the 5,000 men, women, and children were there and they had empty stomachs, he performed a miracle to fill their stomachs. When he came across a woman at a well who had an empty soul, Jesus took the time to fill that soul. When Jairus' daughter, uh, you know, he, he confronts him and, and has an uh, encounter with, with um, Jairus' daughter who has died, Jesus filled the house with joy by bringing her back to life. The problem is that oftentimes we are, we are already full, but of other things. And so um, if you ever paid attention to commercials on TV, you will find what I call a presumption of emptiness. Every advertisement is assuming that you are empty of this product that they have, and that if you just get that product, it will fill you, it will fulfill you in some lasting way, right? So the, let me create the emptiness in you, man. You really want to really live life, you need this. If you really want to look good, you need to have this. And, and so that's what advertisement is built upon, the presumption of your emptiness. We live in that kind of culture. It's a consumer-based culture. It's the idea that our success, our happiness, is directly related to our ever-increasing consumption of goods. And that happiness we experience, the success that we might um, partake in, um, man, you just need a little bit more of whatever it is. So here's the deal. There's a difference between being full and being filled. Paul says that we are to be filled with the Spirit of God. And when you're walking filled with the Spirit of God, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, which is where these uncontrolled emotions and desires and impulses are resonating, wanting to come out, wanting to be fulfilled, wanting to have whatever it is it wants to have because it has promised you something. So here's what I have found for me and what I think I could bear out in most men's lives. That guys, the most important thing you could ever do is every single day of your life is to come to God in the morning as an empty vessel with the Word of God in hand and asking the Spirit of God to take the Word of God and to fill you. Because what happens is, is that that word begins to challenge your emotions. It begins to challenge your thought processes. It begins to challenge your desires and your impulses. So that it knocks down your pride and it begins to rewire your brain because your thought processes are the control center of your life. And until you change the way you think, you will never change your life. But you will be driven by your desires, impulses, those things that will lead you down a pathway that it will eventually result in devastating consequences. Nowhere in the Bible are we told to live on the basis of our desires, our emotions, and our impulses. We are challenged to live on the basis of God's word. Now, for many things, that's the first step. The second step 
get help. You need an outside entity that's going to help you stay on the path that does not veer off in a crossroads as you're trying to battle these things in your life. Because watch, this stuff has so rewired your thinking before you can get from point A to point C to where you need to be or D or wherever it is where you're going to be living and thinking with the mind of Christ and walking in the victory of Christ, you need somebody that's going to help keep you on that path. So when Satan comes along and all, you know, it's just, but it's just a little thing. It's just a small thing. It's just a one time. You can handle this. You can do this. It, it, it won't hurt anybody. Nobody will ever know. And then all of a sudden, now you're off chasing your, your impulses and your desires and your emotions, and you're making driven decisions that are not based on what God would, would want for you. Get help. Get in a group. Get accountability. Get in a system that is designed for whatever it is that you're struggling with. And there are a lot of incredible, incredible um, resources out there that will help you in the midst of your struggle. Stop trying to do it on your own. You need the Word of God, the Spirit of God. That's the secret sauce. But until that gets firmly entrenched, until that's rewired your thought processes, until you start living on the basis of the mind of Christ, you need somebody to help you. Let's bow our heads together.